Good morning. I am Darrell Gunter, your host for Leadership on WSOU 89.5 FM and streaming on the net at WSOU.net. Today, we're so pleased to have in our in, as our in-studio guest, Dr. Annika Gakovich. Annika, welcome to the program, and we really want to thank you for taking time out of your extremely busy schedule to share with us your insights and expertise on leadership. Thank you for inviting me. As we get started in this interview, I always like to start off with uh, giving my guest an overview of the interviewee. So, Annika, if you could tell us a little bit about your, your educational background, your professional background. I am a business psychologist who helps executives and their teams optimize their performance in order to achieve sustainable results. And so the psychologist part means that I got a degree in industrial organizational psychology, and I've spent the last 10-plus years working on Wall Street. And uh, where did you attend uh, to uh, university? Went to University of Houston. Okay. But I, I Almost a cougar by my age, too. Oh. <laughs> but also, I, 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 I notice a, uh, a bit of an accent in your voice. So I am originally from Belgrade, Serbia, and uh, we grew up moving back and forth. My father was a Fulbright scholar and would come teach in the United States. So while this was happening during the Cold War, I got to be one of those kids that never belonged anywhere. I was a Russian spy here, an American spy over there, and that's where you get the groundwork for a psychologist. Oh, wow. I learned to observe the rules of the game without necessarily fitting in. And also you got to observe what, many different cultures? I sure did, and that's one of the things that I really find relevant in today's world where it's not just where somebody's from, it's how different people are in the way they think, in the way their personalities are, and how bringing all of that to the workplace can, on one hand, be a source of innovation and creativity. On the other hand, it can be a source of conflict. Right, and I guess you spend a lot of time helping people to un not only understand the different cultures and the, and the diversity, but also how to manage through it effectively. You got it, and the comments that I will make today are really based on a lot of other smart people's work and the kinds of books and research that have uh, been done in this space. So what I'll do is highlight how I, as a practitioner, use that and we'll offer some names, also suggestions for your readers to follow up on, as well as to give credit where it's due. Oh, that is excellent. That is excellent. Let's talk about talent management. As you know, I don't know if you watch American sports, but right now um, the NFL free agency has opened up, and, and all, everyone is, is trading players. Everyone is uh, acquiring new players to fill in what, what they feel is the, the gaps in their particular team. And corporations are no different. So talent management is extremely important. But, but tell us, what is talent management in the, in the professional world and, and why is it so important? So to your point with the sports analogy, talent management is solving the business problem of how to compete how to compete now in a very turbulent market, in a hyper-connected economy. And so CVOs worry about how to grow the business while managing risks and even doing good. 
um, the triple bottom line. And so businesses need the right talent at the right time, at the right place. And therefore, today, the challenge is how to match all of that up. The irony is that we have a somewhat high unemployment worldwide, and yet companies are saying that they have gaps in the kind of talent they need in order to compete and execute their strategy. And so that's what talent management solves for, is matching a company's need to grow and compete with the kinds of people that can make that happen. Annika, I have noticed over the last 10 years, a lot of the corporations have not dismantled the human resource function, but they've taken a lot of the tools online uh, in regards to benefits and and, and training, uh, some training, but they really haven't, they've really cut back on a number of people in HR who could really facilitate or help management facilitate this talent management. What what, what are you seeing in today's market? It's an astute observation and one that's been caused by a pressure on operational efficiencies and cutting costs. Yet there is a renowned interest in building more of the talent function on the inside as a source of competitive advantage. So companies are considering what needs to be on the inside versus what can be bought on the outside. When it comes to creating uh, this talent management capability, I like Mark Efron's work for his emphasis on simplicity and how talent production starts by first identifying the specifications of what a company needs in order to compete. What are the knowledge, skills, abilities that are necessary? And after modeling that, figuring out how to develop it. When we think of development, we typically think of training, yet the important piece is the work experience, the kinds of assignments that people get to do in order to develop themselves, as well as to gain exposure to different parts of the company and the senior leaders. And then from there, also figuring out the talent mobility and the flow of talent that is necessary in order to allow for succession and for people to gain these different experiences. And let's talk about uh, Mr. Efron's work. Uh, what are the key principles of, of what he's written about talent management? Well, I'll let you ask him. Uh, he, I'm sure, would, would be happy to explain it. I, I, I do like this notion of simplifying what we're doing because I find that when we talk about, let's say, performance management or employee engagement or different parts of talent management, there is a over... Uh, thinking that might happen, and that's what uh, gets in the way of managers being able to focus on doing what matters most. If you're a typical people manager today, you have so many business processes and things to worry about. These talent management solutions need to be simple and need to focus on how to set clear goals, how to provide regular feedback, how to link what somebody is doing to rewards and to what matters to them. And so it's that kind of focus that makes it possible. But those things that you state are so important, but also so basic and fundamental. What happens along the way where someone's performance evaluation is not in line with the company's strategy? In, in your objectives for that year. What, what happens? 
Wow, that's a big question because, one, there is often an organizational alignment issue. So while a company may have a vision, a mission, a strategy, cascading that down throughout the organization requires leaders to have a skill in being able to translate how a company direction syncs up with what an individual is doing. There's also a need to uh, be able to have meaningful conversations with people, and the kinds of skills necessary for that are often not what a typical manager will develop in order to be successful. And therefore, there is between the pressure and the lack of time to the lack of uh, skill where oftentimes this gets lost in the fray and people simply get a report. Maybe they get assigned a number as in a forced ranking for performance management. And what I see companies now trying to do is make these performance management conversations more meaningful, especially because it links to this notion of engagement. And the fact is that a lot of employees are disengaged these days. And you said they are disengaged, but they're being paid. And Correct. <laughs> well, people need more than pay, though. Any kind of research on this topic will show, one, people leave jobs typically because of bad managers, and pay comes in probably third or fourth on the list of things that matter. Also, people need purpose. If you look at the work by Martin Seligman or Dave Ulrich or Daniel Pink, people need a sense of purpose. And this Sense of purpose, that is very important, but I guess when you put together sense of purpose with pay, that's where you have a focused team member? Yes, and also when you have a confidence in where the company is going, which again boils down to how important the people leadership is. The command and control way of treating people as if they're there simply to get the paycheck and to obey doesn't work anymore. It's more about treating employees as volunteers and mobilizing them through that sense of purpose. And typically when you go into uh, one of your clients uh, for an assignment to, to improve productivity, what are some of the tools that you use to, to, to I guess, to, to, to establish where they are and where are the gaps that they might have in their performance of their business? Well, for me as a psychologist, that begins with assessment, both assessing uh, the, the company state and readiness for change as well as the individual needs and how all of that syncs up. When it comes to specific tools, for example, one of the ones that has been popularized and that remains relevant is the notion of emotional intelligence. Uh, sometimes it's referred to as executive presence or personal effectiveness. I found that in my executive coaching work as well as my work with teams, there's a lot of um, foundation in this notion of how people recognize and manage their own and others' emotion in order to motivate each other to move forward. And emotional intelligence, I, I've heard that topic, we've discussed that topic. Um, define emotional intelligence for our audience. So according to uh, Daniel Goldman, who's one of the more recognized names in this area, it's about recognizing how I feel and managing my own emotion, and then recognizing how you and others feel and being able to manage those relationships in order to achieve goals. 
And Goldman specifically talks about how positive feelings create a resonance. And that really, when you think about what we talked about in terms of talent management, about setting goals or having performance conversations, this emotional intelligence is the foundation for other kinds of capabilities and the kind of conversation that these days is necessary because the work we do happens through a group effort. We achieve results through other people, and we have to deal with change constantly. So for the manager of uh, yesteryear who's, who used to say it's my way or the highway, I guess he or she would have a low emotional intelligence score. Or maybe there are still environments where that is relevant. If you're operating in a crisis or when you're dealing with people who have low levels of skill and experience, there is a need for being directive. Outside of those types of scenarios, there is more of a need for dialogue. And if you think about innovation and creativity being necessary for a company to compete and differentiate itself in the market, it comes from the kind of collaboration that is based on having these types of skills. And when you talk about yesteryear, our whole model of how human beings operate has been based on uh, rationality. It's the, the Cartesian way of looking at the world. And yet when you look at what Dan Ariely in behavior economics or David Rock from neuroscience perspective have been writing about is how much emotion guides our decision-making and how our cognition is limited because we are so sensitive to threats. Mm. And how does one gauge their emotional intelligence score as well, a manager? There are ways to assess that and predict what the strengths and the development needs are. And yet, there's also one very basic way, which is look back at how things have worked out for you or fallen apart. Because most likely, when you have had blow-ups, there was a component of emotional intelligence at play. I think we've all seen very bright and driven people fail because intelligence and technical expertise are not enough. And so having that time in self-reflection and awareness and dialogue with those who know you, mentors, advisors, that's where... So let's talk about uh, leadership. Let's talk about uh, what are the some of, what are some of the key elements of being a great leader? What makes a great leader? You, you know, you've heard people talk about you know great leaders are born; they're not they're not made. Um, let's 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 really break this whole leadership thing down for our audience. Sure, and that's a popular topic. There's a bull market out there in terms of books and articles that come out annually, probably in the hundreds. Um, Leadership involves having a compelling vision, driving change, executing strategy, mobilizing people. These are all the components of um, great leaders, and, and we know it. Ultimately, it boils down to having a courage and an awareness. And in terms of some of the books and research that are out there, I think it, it falls into two basic categories. One is models and kind of uh, 
prescriptive ways of breaking down leadership and with the assumption that leadership is made. And yet going back to your notion of are people born with it, there's also quite a few interesting biographies that do show how the way a person is, both with all their strengths and flaws, in certain contexts evolves into leadership. And that's why biographies are interesting. I guess the biographies, they, 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 get, they allow you to see how the individual developed from, I guess, from birth and what are the different events that uh, might have uh, encouraged them, might have challenged them, might have motivated them to, to, to be a better leader. Correct, instead of breaking it down into some model. And, and both are equally useful. It's more about how does one experience that and develop principles out of what we go through as leaders in terms of our own attempts to drive change and have an impact on the world. And, and but what are some of the, you know, we, we talk, you talk about compelling vision, courage and awareness that a leader needs to have, but also a leader needs framework in a business as well in regards to uh, who's going to do what, how are we going to do it, what are the best practices, and, and, and what is the culture that the leader is going to, pro, uh, I guess, um, place on the organization. Correct, and that's why if you remember talking about talent management, that notion of mobility and development through experience is so critical. And, and let's talk about mobility. When you say mobility, um, define that for us. From an organizational perspective, mobility has to do with one's career unfolding in a way that both fits certain organizational needs. For example, if you are a global company that's entering emerging markets, there's probably a need to both move talent out to an emerging market so that there's an institutional consistency in how a leader operates, as well as to bring in talent from emerging markets into a more headquarters-type environment in order to better understand how, let's say, marketing, sales, product, and different pieces of the organizational function need to work in order to compete. And, and who is making the determination... I mean, because you talked about a few things there. You, you know, you talked about making your company agile in the sense of, of what it's, it, how it's going to approach the marketplace and how they're going to address their competitors, their customers. You talk about talent management type of people that we have traditionally hired versus the people that we will need to hire and how we're going to train them. But again, I go back to my earlier concern in regards to these institutions um, cutting back on HR and not giving their managers the right tools to, to, to develop this talent. Maybe you're seeing something different now. Well, I am seeing uh, more and more focus back on what is necessary for a manager to also be more self-sufficient in dealing with this, because ultimately it can't be the HR function that owns talent mobility or performance management and employee engagement. It has to be the people managers who do that. And it's the job of HR to provide the kinds of assessments. And 
Ladies and gentlemen, if you just joined us, we're having a very delightful conversation with an industrial psychologist, Dr. Annika Gakovich. Uh, Annika, so I, I know I kind of taken us down this rabbit hole in regards to understanding mobility, which was getting back into talent management again. But let's get back to, uh, to, to, to leadership, um, the broader aspects of leadership. Uh, and you've defined it as, again, someone having a compelling vision, courage, awareness, but what are some of the other key elements that a great leader must have? Well, we also talked about driving change and executing strategy, which is what keeps you in a job as a leader. Otherwise, without that, keep the stock price up. That's a, right. It's a short career. What I like is um, what, for example, Jim Collins talks about as the balance between will and humility, or Rob Goffey, who talks about earning the right to lead, because ultimately, leadership is something that is a everyday behavior as opposed to a title or something that one is given. And yet people who've spent possibly their whole career fighting to get to that point, oftentimes I see a sense of disappointment because once they do get to that title or get named to run something, what they really do realize is that the need to influence others and to deal with some of the fuzziness of that world doesn't disappear. Maybe there's a higher degree of authority, and yet also the stakes increase in terms of needing to build alliances and to mobilize people without necessarily being able to just tell them what to do. Right, right. You know, interesting, if I can, uh, I'd like to introduce the Yahoo situation, which I find very interesting. As you know, Yahoo has been performing poorly over the last few years, and they've had a number of CEOs. Well, the recent CEO, who just started a few months ago, uh, she uh, realized that there was a particular problem, that everybody was working from home and they were not getting the type of synergy that you would like to have um, in a corporation where people can build off of each other's ideas. So she said, no more working from home. Interesting enough, a few weeks later, she, and she was criticized by many uh, for that move, saying that it's not going to be a great work environment. But what was interesting was that as they did a study, they realized that a lot of the people who were working from home were starting their own companies, were not really doing Yahoo work. So not only were they losing the productivity of them working together to make Yahoo a better company, but people were actually doing other work. And, and, and that's where a simple policy that, that she put in place, controversial, but it also it exposed the reason why Yahoo's productivity and why they haven't been as profitable because the culture uh, had, had really gotten to a point where, you know, the folks were doing whatever they want. How, how, as an industrial psychologist, how would you go in to deal with that type of situation? Well, first of all, I would question where is these employees' sense of purpose and commitment to the organization, because to me it doesn't sound like just a matter of a policy. And whether I'm working from home or not, today's technology allows for all sorts of virtual collaboration, and there's plenty of examples for companies that have pulled that off quite successfully, it's more a matter of employees feeling connected and committed to something bigger than themselves that makes them want to contribute. 
on the other hand, I would also say it's probably a matter of selection and what kinds of people are recruited in. And there's definitely an entrepreneurial aspect to someone wanting to build out something of their own while contributing to a greater whole. The two don't necessarily need to be mutually exclusive as long as there's maybe a discipline around how that entrepreneurial experimentation happens and that maybe there's a way to connect that up with the parent company as opposed to make it something that's competing against the collective. So let's talk about some of your heroes in leadership, Annika. Who are some of your heroes that you would like to discuss with our audience today? Well, heroes is actually a dangerous label when it comes to leadership. Both all the scandals we've seen where CEOs are supermen that may get companies into trouble as they try to compete, and also just in terms of basic human nature. Uh, some of the research from Stanford by Carol Dweck shows how when uh, people are labeled as talented, uh, there is a popularity contest that starts and may lead to a, a tendency to cheat and how it's more important to focus on learning and effort. And so when it comes to leadership, instead of heroism, I would say leadership in service of what? Who are the leaders who are protagonists for what kind of a mission. So, for example, Steve Jobs, with all his dark side, was a protagonist for innovation and simplicity and did have an incredible impact in terms of the industries he's changed. And, yes, he did have quite a bit of a, 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 a dark side. Um, and you wonder... Could he have gotten the same? I mean, because the man, of course, was brilliant in knowing where the market needed to be. Uh, but do you feel that maybe with some executive coaching, he could have dealt with some of his uh, uh, rough spots? Well, thank you for that advertisement. Definitely. <laughs> I, I, I do have a belief that developing leadership skills is what leads to better results and there is evidence to show for it as well that it leads to better business performance and so when you talk about if he had done some development i would have said how do you invest in examining your own assumptions owning your failures owning being wrong even though there's a stigma associated with that and to build on that kind of examination and ownership, then invest in reflection and asking for feedback from others, because this leads to both better connections with the world and other people, as well as one's own awareness as a leader, which is the foundation for dealing with the demons. In your opinion, uh, and if you feel comfortable answering this question, that'd be great. If not, I understand. But in today's business world, uh, who would you say is one of the best leaders out there that really has a sense of purpose and drive, but also has that uh, ability to, 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 to be a human being and treat folks professionally? Instead of naming sort of one person, and, and I'm sure there's plenty of people out there, and I would actually say that it's not just 
someone who's running a company, yes, there's some fabulous CEOs out there. I would ask that everyone considers themselves as a leader and how leadership is not something that we look to up above somewhere, but yet it's something that everyone does every day and and how even every parent out there has to exercise quite a few leadership skills. I'll also offer up a couple of my favorite quotes since you had asked me to think about those and, and they get at some of what we've been talking about. Yes, yes. The first one is, uh, and I'll make both of them very practical, uh, Yogi Berra who said, if you don't know where you're going, you'll end up somewhere else. And, and second one from General Patton, success is how high you bounce when you hit bottom. Because fundamentally leadership is about dealing with failure and then moving on and knowing where we're going. That is so true. That is so true. And Annika, we're just about out of time, but if you could share with us a couple of your favorite books on leadership. Well, throughout our conversation, I've highlighted some of these authors. I love Daniel Pink's work, um, Martin Seligman, who talks about positive psychology at large, and yet it does have direct links to leadership. Uh, Rob Goffey's work, uh, Jim Collins is a classic and someone who's very thoughtful. And whatever books or articles anyone reads, I would ask to spend, after reading books or articles, it's the reflection and possibly dialogue with other people that's really critical for making this gel with who you are. And so spending time maybe journaling about your own experiences and principles or talking to other people in terms of reflecting on your experience and making sense out of your own leadership is where taking what's in a book or in an article really comes to light in changing how you influence other people and how you have an impact in the world. Wow, that's excellent. Uh, Sadly, uh, Dr. Annika, uh, we are out of time. And I really want to to thank you. Uh, Ladies and gentlemen, I want to thank Dr. Annika Gakovich uh, for coming on our program today to share her views on leadership. Annika, thank you. Thank you for having me. Well, listeners, uh, this is Darrell Gunter, your host of Leadership on WSOU 89.5 FM, streaming on the net at WSOU.net, located on the beautiful campus of Seton Hall University in South Orange, New Jersey. Note that this program can be found on iTunes under Seton Hall Leadership and look for Dr. Annika Gakovich. Thank you so much. Remember, leadership begins with you. Have a great weekend.